So I saw A Christmas Carol last night at the Old Vic. And I was just thinking, I was just thinking, maybe maybe the earlier Scrooge was right. Have we just considered the possibility? <laughs> maybe maybe Tiny Tim should be happy with his with his lot in life. I'm just have, saying. Have you have you been to our Thanksgiving, Lesh? I have, I have. Yeah. I do remember. <laughs> I was never clear about the message I was supposed to take from that part about the ASI Thanksgiving. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addiswith Industries podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my trusty co-host and our head of program, Samuel Pryor, as well as Dr. Eamon Butler, the director of the ASI. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing COVID debt, minimum alcohol pricing, and globalization. Government debt has hit 97% of the national income, amounting to a mind-boggling 2.2 trillion pounds. In a new paper for the Adam Smith Institute, our guest today, Dr. Raymond Butler, alongside one of our senior fellows, Gabriel Stein, makes the case for converting COVID-related debt into something called consuls. But before we get onto the meat of your proposals in the paper, Eamon, how badly are we in the hole here? Do you think it was worth spending so much money in response to covid Well, it's one of these things, it's an emergency situation, it's like a war, and stuff happens, and it happens very quickly, and the only thing you can do is throw money at it. You you don't have time to to think, really, and it was the same during the uh, financial crisis, 2008-2009, where, again, Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor, just basically threw threw money at the problem. Um, In retrospect, you'd never do it exactly the same way. But you've got to do something, do it fast and, you know, worry about uh, paying paying the, the cost of it off later. And that, that's really where we are. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're in a big hole. It's left us uh, with, a, with a big problem. We've got debt that's the biggest since, uh, well, really in, in the post-war era. Um, so uh, uh, somehow we've got to find uh, a way to pay that off. And, uh, and in the meantime, of course, it's kind of getting in the way of day-to-day public policy management. Yeah, I think Eamon's completely right that you basically, in, in the state in the state of emergency, you do end up kind of opening up the coffers. And I can think of good and bad examples of this during the pandemic. So, for example, the furlough scheme um, seems like it was a relative success. We haven't seen mass unemployment. In fact, um, this week, the, the data out on unemployment after the end of furlough is, is very positive. Maybe there's a bit of dead weight loss and a, uh, and a bit of fraud going on there that needs to be addressed. But overall, it seems like that was a successful program. Um, you contrast that to something like PPE procurement, in which, yes, it was justified for the government to spend a lot of money very quickly, but the, but the numbers, the, the billions of pounds on what are basically just little pieces of cloth um, is, is mind-boggling, as well as some of the concerns about the, the quote-unquote VIP lane. Um, and as, I suppose what you want to have is a situation where in an emergency you're still um, careful with public finances, but that, that seems um, relatively aspirational, especially when you need to get money out of the door relatively quickly. Well, let's get on to the detail of the paper itself. In the report, you propose converting uh, COVID-induced borrowing to something called consoles. So what are they uh, and how do they differ from the more traditional methods of financing government borrowing in more traditional bonds? Yeah, I, I mean, what we're proposing is really a second best solution because what you, the government should have done is uh, during the crisis itself to to issue consuls uh, to, to, to fund it. So the uh, consuls are like, uh, it, it's like a war debt. 
and uh, this is you know how wars in the past have, have been financed. A traditional government bond is something like, you know, it's a 10-year bond or it's a 20-year or a 30-year bond. And basically, the government is saying, um, uh, you give us some money and we will pay you uh, an annual amount for 10 years. And then we'll give you your money back or 30 years and we'll give you your money back. Um, The trouble with that for financing something uh, like COVID is, firstly, um, you're talking about an awful lot of money. You know, you're talking about a huge amount of borrowing done in a very short time. And we reckon, Gabriel and I reckon, it's probably about 550 billion extra borrowing uh, just to for COVID policy. So you're borrowing all that money at once. And then in 10 years or 20 years or whenever it is, you've got to pay it all back again. Now, who knows what the economy is going to be like in 10 years' time? Uh, you know, it, it, we may still be in a hole. There may be another crisis. You just don't know. So what we've said is uh, what you should do is what we've actually done since the Napoleonic Wars, which is that instead of having a cutout off date for these government bonds, you just make them open ended and you say, um, you give us money because, uh, you know, you lend us money and then we will pay you an annual amount in perpetuity. Uh, and then you can decide when you want to pay it off. It might be 40 years time, might be 50 years time. In fact, we only paid off the last of the uh, uh, the Napoleonic war debt in 2014, together with uh, the, the last of the Second World War debt. Um, so uh, it seems to us to be a, a much more sensible way of doing it. And it makes it clear that that 550 billion odd, you know, quarter of the, the, the national debt at the moment, um, is a kind of one in a hundred year thing. It shouldn't get in the way of our policy trying to reduce uh, the day to day borrowing and the day-to-day debt. So there's a kind of practical point to this, but also a political incentives point, right? That you want to make it clear to politicians and have that drummed into their mind that this is not the same as your day-to-day spending decisions. But if I was one of those politicians, I think upon hearing this idea, my first thought might be, this sounds great. We should finance all of our big infrastructure projects with these things as well. Is that something that you're concerned about or i know you've come up with a few ways to try and mitigate against that risk in the paper at least yeah it's um uh it's a major concern i you should use this kind of long-term borrowing well very very long-term borrowing um in order to deal with national emergencies things that you just get stuck into and 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 you've got no no way out and you just you've just got to spend the money um you don't have to spend the money on HS2. You don't have to spend the money on a bridge over the Irish Sea. You don't have to spend the money on lots of other um, prestige projects. Um, so you don't want MPs to be able to use this system just to uh, um, uh, borrow as much as they like and uh, hope that uh, some people in 100 years' time are going to pay that back off. So you know what we've said is, well... Um, you know, when the debt has reduced to, with economic growth, uh, you know, that 550 billion starts to look smaller. And when it's down to, you know, we say, for example, 3%, then you should have a commitment to to pay it off. But you really do need to to make sure that these are called something different. You know, you need to call it like a, a COVID war bond or something like that to show that this is an emergency, uh, an emergency bond, emergency borrowing. And, uh, you know, what you what you would do is as the sort of 10 year bonds that we've issued uh, come due, you'd replace them with these long term things. Um, 
and then uh, you can you can pay that back whenever you like. Uh, but uh, it, it needs to be something special uh, so that it can't just be used for day-to-day uh, -day, uh, borrowing. Uh, and the whole idea is that you make it special and you say, this is the emergency, this is a one in a hundred year thing. Let's take that out of the equations and let's focus on the rest of, of what's going on. And then we might actually start to, to get the debt down. If if you've got a huge debt and there's an extra five hundred billion in it, then uh, you know there's no there's less incentive to get to grips with it because you think oh dear the debt's just so high we can't do anything, so get that out and then uh, you realise that no you're spending too much you're you're not bringing in enough money, and uh, you've got a a day-to-day -day deficit, um, you need to do something about that and change your policy. I think that, in a sense, the, the genius of this idea is the fact that you do get to lock in relatively low interest rates, although maybe it would have been better to do 12 months ago than today. Um, and, and you ensure that policymakers aren't thinking about COVID debt when, when they're considering their kind of usual levels of debt. Although I, I kind of see a bit of a risk game and not necessarily that um, governments would continue to use consoles for other purposes. I, I think you could probably legislate specifically to make COVID emergency bonds or COVID war bonds um, as a one-time affair. Don't, don't create an ongoing mechanism for Treasury to use this um, as a solution to their problems uh, in, in the same way that um, they were used previously. But I, I do think there's there will be a temptation just to spend more money. And I think this is the broader issue with this government, um, perhaps an irresolvable one, that they, they do just want to spend a lot of money. Um, they, they, they are borrowing a lot of money and there's little temptation to a little... Um, uh, interest in repaying that debt, as well as on top of the fact that you have a lot of kind of headwinds um, when it comes to public finance with respect to decreasing size of working age population, increasing social welfare, healthcare, social care costs. Um, I, I don't know how that kind of factors into this cal calculation, but it does seem like we're on the trajectory towards that kind of bigger state and, and more debt into the future and kind of pushing burdens onto future generations. Yeah, well, that's, that's why I want to sort of park this debt in, in some different way. But, so you can then focus on your day-to-day -day, uh, concerns and your day-to-day -day policy. Because if you've got an absolutely vast, enormous, huge debt, uh, then uh, the temptation to say, well, you know, we want to do X, Y, Z, it's only going to cost another 10 billion or a hundred billion, you know, what's that? It's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean as far as the debt's concerned. Um, so you don't want to get into that situation. You want to look at debt and say, actually, um, it's prob probably better if we repay debt. I mean, certainly under in the Thatcher era's uh, Lawson repaid the national debt. He started to bring debt down. Now that's, you know, that's that's a rarity these days. People just assume that the government is going to go borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And you know, you can say, well, it's fine if it's actually borrowing for proper investment, but it never is. It's just it's it, it might be called investment, but it's really just day to day spending. So we want to get governments out of that habit, and we think parking the debt in this the COVID debt in this way. Um, is, is a way to focus them back on the real things. Yeah, it definitely seems like a good psychological incentive there. It's almost as though if you're an MP or a government minister that, say, 1% debt as a percentage of GDP is a tragedy and 100% is a statistic, right? <laughs> There's not very yeah, much in the way absolutely. of uh, concern once it gets to certain numbers because either there's a, a kind of fatalism about, well, we can never tackle this or there's just a... a thing that politicians often do when they see very very large numbers and it's not 
quite understand or grasp just the extent of the problem. Um, but I think on that note, we should probably move on to the second section of the podcast today, which is on minimum alcohol pricing, a retrospective. A new study conducted for Public Health Scotland has found no strong evidence that minimum unit pricing has reduced alcohol consumption or harm. Daniel, the ASI were one of the strongest critics of the minimum alcohol pricing approach when the policy was first mooted. What are the kind of problems that you've seen arise? Well, there's a few kind of key issues that we brought up when this policy was first mooted back in the early 2010s. So it's it's been a long time coming and it got challenged in the courts and didn't get introduced in Scotland until 2018. But the key one really is that it's going to punish moderate drinkers by increasing the price of their drink without actually achieving its public health objectives of significantly curbing uh, the habits of heavier drinkers. Uh, this is basically the classic objection to minimum alcohol pricing that's been around for a very long time. And it seems like even when the public health uh, officials in, in Public Health Scotland, when they clearly are motivated to try and find a positive impact, they haven't been able to. Um, now, you could say that part of that is because this particular study, uh, it, it just found no impact either way because the minimum unit price was set too low. That seems to be what the authors conclude. And it's the classic. It's like, well, if we only increase the amount of nanny statism, then we would finally get the result that we wanted. And of course, that's a particularly slippery slope because you keep going down that way until you know you do find an impact. But as well as the, the kind of impact on um, on moderate drinkers, you also have this substitution effect, or at least the potential for one, where you raise the price for heavy drinkers of cheap alcohol. So instead, they go towards either bootleg alcohol or they use other drugs. Um, that's something that the authors of this study looked at. Uh, they didn't find particularly significant effects either way, although they did find a, a marginal effect towards more people using uh, illicit drugs post-minimum alcohol pricing being implemented so basically it's just punishing the responsible majority for the actions of a small minority who do drink to excess um, and it's not helping those who drink to excess at all so not very successful not a very good policy <laughs> yeah it seems quite extraordinary the extent to which public health scotland have actually commissioned a whole range of studies on this policy um, and one after another finds things like it didn't uh, decrease crime. It didn't decrease hostile um, customer interaction or shoplifting. Um, it, it, it didn't, uh, little evidence that it shifted illicit purchase of alcohol or changed um, necessarily theft or anything else. So it, it does seem quite extraordinary um, as, as a policy to then say, well, rather than this is a failed policy, we should take a different approach just to say, actually, minimum alcohol pricing didn't go far enough. and We, we, we just need higher and to go further in future and, and, and push people a, a bit harder. I don't, I don't know, Eamon, whether, whether you have um, any strong feelings about this. Yeah, there's a certain uh, puritanism around in Scotland, you know. And um, uh, when I was a student in uh, uh, Scotland in St Andrews in the 1970s, um, the pubs actually closed at, uh, at 10 o'clock in the evening. You couldn't get a drink after that. They'd only opened at five. And, uh, uh, and al alcoholism was a real problem. Uh, Alcohol-related illness was a real problem. Uh, crime at 10 o'clock in the evening was a real problem. All that kind of stuff. And then suddenly, um, you know, partly uh, un under pressure from us and, and others, uh, Scotland opened up 
uh, and the pubs were open, some of them 24 hours a day, and illness due to alcohol uh, fell, crime due to alcohol fell, uh, all of these other, other things. And I've seen that in countless countries. First time I went to Canada, uh, you could only buy uh, alcohol at a, a, a government liquor store which were few and far between, and you had to pay cash, and they were just grotty, horrible places that you wouldn't want to go into. So half the population seemed to be desperate to try and get a drink, and the other half seemed to be suffering from the ill effects of having done so. So you know, I think that the more you, you try to, um, to, to clamp down on alcohol consumption, the worse you, you actually make the problem. And, uh, and the best places are you know, continental places where um, you know, people drink in moderation because it's, it's, it's not something that, that's seen to be, I don't know what it, what it is about it, that it's not something that's seen to be illicit. Yeah, it, it does seem like a quite manipulative policy at, a, at its core, particularly on people from, from poorer backgrounds who might be wanting to drink lower cost alcohol. It's quite interesting that when some of the, one of the studies they did um, looking at people about their anticipated response to mineral alcohol pricing found that quite substantial numbers, most would kind of drink the same, but um, many would actually be willing to sacrifice other things to keep in drinking alcohol. So they, they're going to prioritise um, and you, you might say they have an inelastic um, response to an, to an increase in price annual. What is, what is the kind of distributional effect of minimum alcohol pricing? You know, I remember when uh, the government introduced, this is, we're talking decades ago here, introduced on the back of cigarette packets, they, they, they put the nicotine content because they thought that would induce people to go for softer and softer, lower nicotine cigarettes. In fact, it had the exactly the opposite uh, effect. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody, start, including my father, started smoking capstan full strength because you got more bang for the buck. And I think that's the sort of effect uh, that you get when you, when you, you do this kind of alcohol pricing, that, that, that people go for you know, a really strong drink that just happens to be cheap for one reason or another. Uh, and and we we saw that in in Scotland with uh, you know specialist beers and so on, which were and liqueurs, which were uh, very very strong. So um, that is the problem, I think. Yeah, my my favourite case of this was in, in Australia. They introduced what was called an alcohol pop tax, so a, a tax on kind of premixed drinks um, that, that they thought the youths were, were drinking too much of and, and abusing. That actually led a lot of people to rather than buying a premixed drink, just buying a, a bottle of vodka. Uh, and mm. uh, a bottle of Coca-Cola and then mixing themselves and yeah. drinking more. And there's also some evidence that it um, led to increased drug use as well. So it certainly wasn't a policy that succeeded. No, I think we need to, to treat people as grown-ups, you know. We, 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 need, we need to realise that people can, can – most people, right. Some people have a problem. Let's deal with the people who have a problem differently. But for most of us, you know, we, uh, we can handle alcohol perfectly naturally – uh, we've been doing it for thousands of years, let's face it, um, and, uh, and and there isn't a problem. So just you know, just don't don't bully people around. And and I think I think the more and more you do this kind of thing, the more and more we get into the idea that the government can basically change the world in any way it wants, and it can't. Uh, you you know, you're dealing with human beings who are ornery critters they don't do what you think they're going to do and sometimes very often in fact you make the whole situation worse right the the price insensitivity of heavy drinkers point that you mentioned earlier lesh i think is key here you've 
got a very a, a comparatively small group of drinkers who either they don't respond to price increases by reducing their consumption or they might reduce their consumption of one type of alcohol or, or and substitute towards the illicit market or they might uh, substitute towards a different drug of choice uh, or they might just as is often the case forego various other pleasures in life like say feeding their kids if they're particularly bad um you know if they're if they're particularly struggling with alcoholism then this sort of thing is entirely possible so the kind of motivation behind this is to help that group the problem is that you're kind of punishing everyone else without helping that group in the first place and there's a a kind of distributional like an inequality point here that's often missed um, by advocates of this policy and of course it's going to have a more disproportionate impact on poorer drinkers, poorer moderate drinkers at that who might enjoy a, a glass of Audi wine or you know a, a cheap can of lager after work in the evening, and they're going to have to pay a significant amount more every year if they want to maintain that perfectly reasonable and uh, perfectly healthy habit if they're a moderate drinker. Now the the kind of public health uh, advocates just tend to come back and say, well, of course the policy. Is it might be regressive in this way, but overall it's actually progressive because uh, heavier drinkers tend to be poorer and we're concerned with helping heavier drinkers. I mean, first off, that's not the kind of definition of progressive versus regressive in any sort of economic discourse that you'd ever come across. Uh, but secondly, more importantly, that only works as an argument if it does help those heavier drinkers. And as is the case, and as Public Health Scotland seems to have found at least, it hasn't. Um, and just as we predicted, it turns out that it does not help the people that they set out to do. It's a classic case of unintended consequences, nanny statism ending up making things worse, uh, and we should get rid of it and stop this failed experiment as soon as possible. I, I don't think you can uh, help um, um, problem drinkers by putting up the price of their booze. I think you can help them by sitting down with them, understanding their problem working with them uh, because most of them don't want to be in that state. So, um, uh, you know, that is the way to do it. Uh, but, you know, where's that going to come from? How, you, you, do, do we see government even talking about that? No, you don't. Um, it, it's, it's, it's Puritanism is, is what's behind it. I do wonder, though, the extent of popularity behind these policies. Do, do governments do them because uh, they lobbied by kind of an elite paternalistic anti-alcohol lobby um, or do they do it because people actually want to punish others for their alcoholism that they perceive themselves well you know of course I am appropriate with alcohol I don't drink too much but other people are completely terrible and and we need minimum alcohol pricing I don't don't know if there's any public surveys that you've seen done or anything like that on on the fact of whether people actually want these policies or they kind of thrust upon them well, back when this was being discussed for for England and Wales, and this was, you know, probably ne- nearly a decade ago, so this is out of date. But the YouGov polling around there was split roughly fifty fifty on minimum unit pricing. I think there was slightly stronger opposition in Scotland, but ultimately, with these things, you know, that unless you're someone who's fairly poor and are going to be significantly disproportionately impacted by this, even if you do have fairly liberal instincts if it's presented to you in such a way as this will stop those annoying drunk people at night swearing and shouting and 
whatnot, then you're going to be like, yeah, okay, I, I really support that. The problem is that a lot of the time there just isn't enough inclusion of the, the liberal perspective, the idea of unintended consequences in the public debate around these policies. All they're presented as is this fantastic way of improving the health of the nation and none of the costs or potential costs are even acknowledged. They're not mentioned by advocates for the policy. I'd have a lot more respect for people who support minimum alcohol pricing if they said, yes, you know, this is going to make poor drinkers even poorer, but we still think that it might help um, reduce, say, alcohol-related crime or something like that. At least that would be a a kind of honest appraisal of the facts, but they don't do it. Uh, And the same goes for other kind of paternalism issues as well, where you look at the polling on the face of it, actually there does seem to be a a non-trivial amount of support for, say, the sugar tax when that was first brought in. I think number 10, when they did some, some... internal polling at the time found that yes there was actually quite a lot of support for the the sugary drinks levy the only reason that's the case is because people aren't presented with it in terms of costs and benefits they're not presented with the trade-offs and this is the case when it comes to so much polling on just about any sort of issue you mentioned that is perennially frustrating to free marketeers that it's presented as so you can have something for nothing uh, a particular interventionist policy and of course that's not the case so it is true, you can't deny that there's a, a significant groundswell of support for paternalism. And I think partially that's lack of understanding of trade-offs. I think partially that's because there's a fair amount of people in the UK who are actually Puritans. It's not just the politicians. Mm. Well, on that note about costs and benefits, shall we move on to our next topic about globalisation? The government's new export strategy, Made in the UK, Sold to the World, aims to boost exports to £1 trillion by 2030. Eamon, your latest book is an introduction to trade and globalisation, which tracks the the history, economics and some of the controversies surrounding international trade. But first off on this fairly recent announcement of boosting exports to a trillion pounds are we now dominated by mercantilists as smith warned us about <laughs> one trillion pounds <laughs> it just it sounds nice it sounds nice it does feel like a, a classic focus on exports i mean the thing is exports are always um deceivingly popular people like producing and exporting but but as i'm sure i make it explain uh, much more elegantly and intelligently and capably than myself we actually lose when we export we sense that we make something and we send it to someone else and all we get in return is some like numbers on a spreadsheet somewhere that says we have money you know don't, don't we get, used to get gold now, now all we get is some some digits on a on a on a register so i mean of course you need exports in order to import um because you kind of you need foreign currency you kind of buys and sells but i think we should sell celebrate imports a lot more than we do because imports is how we get stuff that um from others and we we often politically think uh imports are bad exports are good but that that's basically just incorrect yeah people have always done that adam smith uh, back in 1776 complained uh, about that of course and uh it was saying that people look at uh at trade and they think oh whoever gets the money um is obviously the winner um, so we should uh, uh, export as little as we can, uh, 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 sorry, import as much as we can. And, uh, uh, oh, God, oh let me do that one again. Um, well, this goes right back to 1776. And uh, 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 this goes right back to Adam Smith uh, writing in 1776. 
uh, about mercantilism and the idea that um, in in any trade, it's the person who actually gets the the hard cash that that is the winner. Um, and if you give away the goods, uh, then you're the loser. Um, so you should be selling as much as you can abroad in order to get the cash back, uh, and you should be making sure you don't buy anything from abroad. But th that ignores the other side of the equation. You pay cash, but you get goods or services in return, and those goods and services are valuable. <laughs> they're, they're worth something to you. In fact, they're obviously worth more than the cash that you've give, given up for them. Um, so, yeah, there is uh, too much of a, a, a focus on exports um, and uh, not enough on the on the benefits of imports and uh, as uh, PJ O'Rourke the uh, uh, American humorist but he's also actually a rather good good economist uh, says um, uh, uh, imports are Christmas morning uh, exports are January's credit card bill you know, they have to be paid for imports have to be paid for some way well, let's maybe look at the, the kind of earlier history of trade and some of its origins. One of the kind of classic arguments that you tend to get in the, in the field of trade is that actually the emergence of trade was responsible for various evils like colonialism and slavery. How do you see that kind of link working out in practice? Do you think that's a, a trade issue, a mercantilism issue, a, a government issue? Uh, I think that was a specific uh, mercantilist issue because, um, in you know, if you are, are committed to this uh, idea that you have to export and export and export and and not import anything, make everything yourself, then what happens is you're driven to uh, create empires, and and all of the great European powers were, were driven to this. The idea was that you need to annex as much of the world as you can, and then that's yours. You don't have to buy anything from anybody else, um, and uh, you, you're every, everything's hunky dory. And that is the so so that is what drove imperialism. It wasn't trade that drove imperialism. There's been trade for millennia, and it hasn't since the Stone Age and before the Stone Age. We, you know, we have stone implements uh, that were traded 30,000 years ago in the Polynesian islands. Uh, you look, even in Europe, you find all sorts of um, archaeological finds that have clearly originated uh, in lots of other parts of Europe or Asia, up in you know Scotland and Cornwall and uh, all over the all over the place. So this has been trade has been going on <laughs> as long as we've been human beings, uh, but the uh, the imperialist episode was driven really not not by trade but by a misunderstanding of trade by that mercantilist misunderstanding that we had to do everything ourselves. One of the other common I guess misunderstandings when it comes to trade, and this is one that still comes up to this day is the idea that you have to have some level of protectionism for say your infant industries um, you have to stop countries from dumping their cheap goods on your shores by subsidizing them at home uh, there's the balance of payments issue that comes up as well do you see any of these kind of arguments for protectionism the more i guess modern arguments in favor of protectionism as carrying any significant weight 
Well, they are very important to people because people's lives and jobs uh, depend on uh, producing things and selling things. So if somebody else comes in and can do it uh, better and cheaper, then you know that's really bad news as far as you're concerned. And that's the, the origin of all this protectionism. But you talk of things like the infant in- industry argument, which is very popular um, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the trouble is, as we discovered, that the infant inv- industries never grow up. Uh, that you subsidize an industry to create, to create uh, um, uh, your own domestic industry. And then it, uh, it, there's never a good time to stop subsidizing it because uh, if you try to stop subsidizing it, pe- uh, people in that uh, business will say, oh, you, oh dear, no, you can't do that. It's going to cost jobs and you know, it's going to ruin the business and then we won't have any trade and, and then we'll be poor. And, and of course, what you, you get is, uh, like you did in the 60s and 70s with that policy, you get completely inappropriate businesses being built up. The government decides it's going to subsidize something. What does it subsidize? It subsidizes things that are big and flashy. You know, let's build a steel mill, right? And uh, so you put a steel mill in a place that's, you know, just completely inappropriate for a steel mill because it's miles away from the, the inputs you need and it's miles away from your market. Uh, but it makes you think that yes, you, well, you're you're protecting your own uh, economy and uh, you're creating something which you can then sell to the rest of the world. They're all abject failures. And and what about the the dumping argument? Because this is one that I think vexes a lot of people who might traditionally align themselves with the centre right, especially when it comes to China, for example. Others say, well, of course, I'm I'm very pro free trade and I recognise its various benefits, but you can't have China subsidising. Uh, you know, their cheap goods to export to us and the best solution to them being interventionists, in fact, for us to also be interventionists. Do you think that carries any weight at all? Well, part of, part of me thinks that, uh, you know, if somebody is prepared to sell me something ultra cheap and even cheaper than it costs them to make, then I'll have as much as I can. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> uh, I, I think you need to, um, uh, dis, to unscramble uh, a couple of differences here. Now, it's perfectly possible that, that suppliers um, ab- abroad, they might produce something that just doesn't work for them, and so they sell it cheap. Or, you know, they, they may uh, miscalculate the quantities and they've got a, a surplus and they sell it cheap. Well, there's nothing wrong with your consumers buying cheap stuff that's the result of uh, foreign producers making mistakes. The thing you've got to watch for, I think, is um, trade being used as a political policy uh, that you get when governments get involved and they start subsidizing industries, then I think, yeah, you, you, you have a problem because this is not an open market. This is, this is a political market. And that's where you get into, into a difficulty. But as Adam Smith said, um, you, you, you can deal with things like that by retaliating, but then that might just get you into, into a trade war. So it is a very difficult one. Um, so, you know, my advice is let's just get governments out of trade entirely. And uh, the latest initiative by the UK government is not entirely welcome. Well, I initially went straight to some of the objections to trade, but uh, for a nice injection and dose of what I'm sure will be optimism, perhaps we can go to you, Matthew, to talk about some of the moral and economic arguments in favor of free trade, because a lot of people see it as a kind of just a neutral fact of the modern world, as opposed to a specific moral good, which I think, and I imagine you think it is. 
yeah, I think I think there's a few dimensions in which which trade is a good. First of all, uh, in the economic sense, trade boosts our prosperity. Um, as as you know, classically identified both by Smith and and then Ricardo with the idea of um, kind of advantage. Um, you you can specialize in what you're best at, and then trade for other things that makes you more prosperous. Um, it means in in the modern world. Uh, kind of developed countries, post-industrial countries can specialize in services and more creative industries and then trade for industrial goods and then work our way up the supply chain um, process and, and, and the value chain and um, lift people out of poverty along the way. And I think trade is, can be linked to the lifting of many billions of people out of poverty in, in recent centuries. Our ability to trade globally has made, made us much richer and, and benefited people generally. You can also get into some of the more specific kind of economic benefits. Trade allows you to exchange knowledge so you can Im- improve process. Uh, it, it, it allows you um, to access goods that you wouldn't otherwise be able to access. So, for example, in the, in the UK's case, UK has been a, a net importer of food for you know hundreds of years now, and, and that means that we can have all sorts of different foods um, at all sorts of different times of the year, and it kind of diversifies our diets and, and provides us those kind of massive benefits of, of um, just the quality of life that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. But I also think, and, and Eamon's book identifies this quite well, there's a moral dimension here as well. Uh, people who trade are less likely to fight and war. And there's a, there's a, there's a classic quote about, um, you know, if I kill my um, uh, baker that I have to find somebody else to to buy bread from, you know, if, if we're trading with each other. And there's, there's actually good evidence on this. There's, there's um, good evidence in the kind of social science literature about what drives um, democracy and what drives uh, peace. And in, in a sense, trade is the kind of key factor here, even stronger than democracy. You can have two democratic countries fighting with each other, but you're just substantially less likely to go to war if you are interconnected economically um, because of the mutual benefits that come with trade and, and the costs. Now, this isn't perfect, of course. You know, you can look back in history and say, well, Germany and the UK was trading quite a lot before World War One, of course. But overall, you see quite a positive story with countries that, that trade and um, peace uh, and, and prosperity and, and collaboration with each other because trade is just a way that we can mutually beneficially uh, interact with people all over the world um, in, in a way without conflict and, and any of the, the kind of political politicized negativity. Well, we've looked at the past of trade. We've looked at the present. How about the future now? The kind of something we've discussed on this podcast before is that partially as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of other more long-term factors it seems like there's a chance at least to the world moving away from more global supply chains and multinational corporations and it certainly seems to be a, a strain of thinking at least among some economists right now that this might be the correct thing to do um do you see that as a potential likely outcome amen if we look back in 50 years and think of this and the the 90s and 2000s as a golden age of free trade and globalization or are we still on an upward trajectory i think we're still on an upward project trajectory uh, you know it may be that people uh, decide that uh, it would be safe to have your own backup at home but the cost of doing that uh, you know, if there's something like a pandemic and then suddenly you discover, you know, all the world's uh, um, uh, personal protection equipment is made in China and then everybody's going to China and the price is soaring and all the rest of it and you you, you don't have a local supply. So I can, I can see problems like that. Um, and I can see that, uh, yeah, uh, in, in recent years, the world 
you know, under Donald Trump in particular and so on, has become uh, perhaps more introspective and, and, and more protectionist. But I think these are temporary things because the benefits of trade are so vast. And also you've got to realize that um, the world is getting smaller. It's much easier to transport goods longer distances. Um, more goods and services are being uh, supplied electronically. Um, so, you know, that, that's instantaneous and cheap. Um, so I think all of that sort of thing is is going to continue and we're going to be actually outsourcing more and more things to more and more countries. We're going to be importing more and more things from more and more countries and selling more things to more and more countries. So uh, uh, I think that's a long term uh, plan. You know, now we've seen that tr how trade works, you know, just since since 91 or thereabouts, when when world trade really started to open up, the benefits have been just so huge in terms of the diversity of, of goods that we can get here, but also in in boosting the the right lives and, and incomes of people in poorer countries in particular who suddenly became part of the world trading system we see the benefits of that and we don't want to go back to the old days this is where something i think is often misunderstood that we, we think trade often makes us less resilient that we've got these risks you know ppe for example um it caused you know a, a massive issue at the start of the pandemic and people said, well, if only we could do all these things domestically. In fact, trying to do everything domestically doesn't increase um, your security of supply. What actually increases it is diversity, is being able to get things from lots of different places. Mm. So if you think about food, for example, if you have a bad season um, in, in producing grain, you're, you're screwed if you can't get grain from anywhere else. But if you have a few different sources of grain, um, you're able to have a, a, a backup supply chain. I think there's a lot, a lot of companies thinking about it. Yes, they kind of found themselves um, during the pandemic stung to some extent as China, particularly in the, in, in the first half of 2020, reduced their um, supply to the world. They, they found that they didn't quite have all the parts they needed and that there might be some one obscure part for their car manufacturing process that came from China they couldn't get from anywhere else. What they need to do is find somewhere else to get it from so that, that there's always a backup. So there's multiple places things are coming from. Um, and, and that's something that's going to, businesses are able to do naturally. I don't, I don't think the state needs to intervene in here to make supply chains more resilient. I think supply chains are extremely complex, um, emergent feature of a modern economy. And yes, we're, we're seeing some shortages and things at the moment, particularly as the, the economy rebounds post-COVID and you've seen an increase in shipping costs and then it's kind of come down a bit. I think the market can respond to these things quite naturally and well and, and doesn't need intervening. Price signals can, can do their magic. If the price of shipping goes up, companies will enter that shipping market and, and they'll, they'll go back down, for example. Um, so I, I think that these these kind of things are going to sort themselves out as businesses work out to ensure their the own security of their their production, um, rather than through kind of a deglobalization, which would in fact make us a lot less resilient in the longer run and isn't particularly well thought out in terms of what the outcomes would be. I, I think that's a really uh, important point. I mean, when people talk about trade, they, they talk about countries trading with each other. It's not countries trading with each other. It's people trading with each other. And people have traded with each other for millennia. Let them get on with it. Don't push them around. Don't tell them what to do. Just let them get on with it and they'll sort the problem. And I guess just to finish off with a question on the rise of China, do you think that this change in the kind of geostrategic landscape has changed your views on trade in any way? Because it certainly seems to at least presented a, a challenge to some of the more orthodox free market 
views around how we should respond to various trade policies of other countries? Or do you think that it can be pretty much integrated into the existing framework? Uh, well, it's a big world out there, and you've got lots of uh, places that you can buy stuff from. You don't have to buy everything from China. I mean, when I was very small, everything said made in Hong Kong. Uh, so nothing much has nothing much has changed. But um, you know what I what I would say is that the 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 trouble with um, dealing with things like that is that it, it, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Um, you 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 set up. Uh, say security standards or um, uh, other other standards, um, you uh, try to uh, say, well, the Chinese have been subsidising their currency to X percent, and therefore we should put an X percent tariff on it. Actually, it just gets you into a sort of policy spaghetti that you can never really unravel. So, um, so that's the problem. So, I I think we should be aware of people who are trying to, say, monopolize strategic materials and treat that as being a strategic problem for the Ministry of Defense and the security services. Uh, but as far as possible, we should just keep trade out of that kind of uh, uh, security issue. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important distinction because realistically, um, and even what in terms of what would be an ideal outcome, we, we don't want to stop trading with China entirely. In the first instance, trade with China um, has helped make us, makes us prosperous. Uh, it, it has helped us as well as helping them. And, and there is also a moral good in lifting hundreds of millions of Chinese people out of poverty. On top of that, I think the fact that we continue to trade with China reduces the, the likelihood of conflict. It's that point about um, Milton Friedman made it um, elegantly and, and plenty of others have as well, um, historically, that trade um, pacifies relations between people. And, and because we do have all these geostrategic issues, if we can continue trading with them in positive terms, you, you reduce the, the, the risk of, of conflict, or at least you hope to reduce the risk of conflict. I think you probably do have to separate. And this is where I, I kind of, to some extent, have um, changed my views, which is you, you do have to take the security issues seriously, um, particularly for, let's say, strategic industries or strategic assets and foreign investment. And um, the, the, the Chinese government uh, and, and the, the kind of state-run companies do try to buy up um, military-associated um, technologies, you know, AI or drones or whatever else. And you have to be very careful about not selling that that technology, um, to, which which has a kind of strategic purpose. Now, I think you've then got to be careful to separate out what is strategic and, and what is just pure old-fashioned protectionism. I think that's where the, the challenge is, because the, the more you you give on, let's say, the the strategic question about allowing and putting in place mechanisms to, to limit. Um, let's say foreign investment, for example, um, the, the more it's good, you risk it being abused uh, by people who are just having old-fashioned protectionist instincts. And I think it's getting that line right is the challenge for, for advocates of free trade. And there's, and there's no shortage of people who would dearly love protectionism for their own business. Yeah, there's something about, I, I agree that, you know, it's changed my views in the sense of caring more about actual strategic industries. But as you say, a lot of the old-fashioned protectionists and indeed just people who are national populists will take the kind of strategic industry or national security argument and take it to such an extent that it becomes absolutely ridiculous. I mean, France once blocked the takeover of Danone, the yogurt company, on the basis that it was a strategic industry. You know, you can take these things way too far. And I, I Think that most reasonable people would realize that actually yogurt is not a particularly good example of something that politicians need to protect from foreign influence or foreign takeover unless they're concerned about us eating 
poison yogurt or something along those lines. Yeah, there's, there's a there's a good example of this at the moment as well. With um, apparently they're, they're looking into um, I think it's the the repurchase of ARM, which is a chip manufacturer. Mm. Now that was bought by a Japanese company. Now it's it's um, uh, looking like it might be bought by an American company. It doesn't seem like something the government needs to intervene in. That's it's not a it's not a strategic um, concern. If something to do with Japan or the US buys a, a chips company, I probably would be more concerned. And this is this is where you know you, to some extent you have to be discriminatory. If it was a Chinese company with state links trying to buy it, so just making those distinctions, which is quite important. It doesn't matter if something is foreign owned. If it's owned by a, a company from a friendly country, it is a problem. If it's foreign owned, if it's if it's by a country that that doesn't share our values. Well, on the note that we shouldn't worry too much about takeovers of yogurt companies or semiconductor firms by uh, the US, China or, or Japan most of the time, I think it's probably time to end this episode of the Pin Factory podcast. And I'd like to thank my erstwhile co-host, Matthew Lesh, our head of research, as well as our special guest for this episode, Dr. Eamon Butler, the director at the Adam Smith Institute. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you for listening and join us next week for more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.